Would you pray with me, please? God, we are so grateful for the presence of the Holy Spirit in this place. May he fill us so that we are encouraged, so that we are challenged, so that we know your presence in our lives, not just in this place, but in every single day of our life. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. You have a seat. It's good to see you all this morning. It's holiday weekends. I never know who's going to show up. I always joke, tell people it may just be a small group. There may just be six of us sitting down front, but we'll do it, right? So we are starting a new series this morning, and we're going to be taking a look at the book of Ephesians, specifically just 11 verses in chapter 6 over the next four weeks. And these words are critical because the whole sixth chapter starts with Paul saying, and finally. And it truly, you may not have known, but it was not just the last words of this letter to this church in Ephesus. They were some of the last recorded words of Paul's life, of encouragement and teaching to Christians. In nearly every, every chapter of this short little book, Paul goes back again and again to this idea that life in Jesus is going to have struggles. And so according to Paul, if you're here this morning and you feel like your faith is being tested, like you're being pushed to the limits, you're not alone and something weird isn't happening to you. This is just a normal part of our life in Christ. In fact, I think Paul goes far enough that he just paints the picture that life in Jesus is never going to match up to the rosy idealism of our dreams. It's never going to match up to the romanticism that's in our songs. He pushes us to dig deep into that and try to understand the root of the struggles that we face in this life. And in the process, he makes it really clear. The real challenge to your faith and mine is not that person in the office we just can't seem to get along with. It's not that neighbor down the street that constantly irritates and agitates you. It's not the family member who knows how to push your buttons. And it seems like they're just laying on that one button right now. It's not that one friend who constantly challenges us to go across a line that we know we shouldn't cross. Our struggle is not with government officials, it's not with other religions, it's not with any people group. In fact, Paul goes far enough to say that our struggle isn't even with human beings at all. The root cause is much deeper than that. And as odd as it may sound to our enlightened Western minds, we are caught in a spiritual battle between the forces of heaven and the forces of hell, between God himself and the devil. In Ephesians, Paul returns to that theme over and over and over again and says if we're trying to live a life for Jesus, then we are in a spiritual battle. We can't escape some obvious questions if that's true. Like, does our faith make any practical difference in our life when things get tough? Is our faith strong enough that it's going to help us when all of our hope runs out, when all of our physical strength runs out. In fact, is our faith worth fighting for? 
Well, Paul writes over and over again in Ephesians about this battle between the forces of heaven and hell, and it's what Christian circles have come to call spiritual warfare. Now, admittedly, just even saying those two words, spiritual warfare, causes some polar opposite reactions in any room. There are some people here who are very comfortable with their understanding of the tension between these two kingdoms and how it impacts life. And then there are others who just saying the words spiritual warfare kind of weirds them out. They haven't talked about it, they don't really understand it, and they just get uncomfortable. I've known people who believe in God, but their belief in something that's not physical, that's outside this world, kind of ends there. They haven't really investigated, don't understand, don't want to know that there's anything else. Are there angels? Demons? You know, I mean, isn't that all just stuff for people who are backward? They're unenlightened? The citizens of Ephesus, to whom Paul was writing, would have had none of those challenges. In fact, Luke writes about the start of the church in Ephesus in Acts 19 and gives a very vivid detail about just how closely the physical and spiritual worlds are connected in this life. He says, uh, as Paul was planning the church in Ephesus, God did extraordinary miracles through him so that even handkerchiefs and aprons Paul touched were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and evil spirits left them. That's pretty powerful. There were, though, some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits and tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. And they would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you, come out. Now, let's understand the picture here. Paul is planting this church in Ephesus. What he's doing is incredible. It's miraculous. And those who were still a part of the Jewish faith were so jealous of the popularity that Christianity was gaining, they started imitating what Paul was doing. They didn't believe in Jesus. They just were imitating what he was doing because of his popularity. And then this happens. So the seven sons of Sceva, the Jewish high priest, were also doing this. And one day, an evil spirit answered them, I would be done. Right there. You? I mean, you're talking to this guy, and all of a sudden, and I can't make my voice do this, but it's like that voice that you hear in the movies that just strikes terror in your heart. It's like, yes. You know, it's just... So he he talks to them and goes, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? And then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all, all seven of them. And he gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. I'm not a fighter, okay? But I got to believe at some point sheer numbers win. You with me? I mean, if it's seven to one, you got a pretty good feeling the odds are in your favor. Evidently not so when it has to do with an evil spirit. Because one man with an evil spirit beat the snot out of seven guys and sent them running naked into the streets. Now, admittedly, they were pastor's kids, but still. <laughs> when all this became known to the Jews and the Greeks living in Ephesus, Ephesus they were seized with fear. I think that may be an understatement. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. And many of those 
who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. Yup. <laughs> that would draw a confession out of us. In fact, Luke goes on to tell the whole story, and it's fascinating to read, but those believers all of a sudden started cleaning house. They brought all of the, the, the bracelets and the charms and all of the jewelry associated with work, worshiping the goddess Diana, Artemis, uh, the Greeks called her, uh, which was the central religion in Ephesus. They brought in these little shrines that were made by the silversmith. They brought all that together. They brought all of their books and scrolls that had to do with dark magic and sorcery, and they put it all together in a pile in the center of town, and they burned it. And the Bible estimates that in current dollars, that was like a million dollars worth of property they destroyed that day. So, undoubtedly, the people in the church in Ephesus knew this story and knew it well. It had just been a couple of years since Paul had seen them, and this had happened. In fact, some of them may have known one of those seven sons of Sceva and heard the story firsthand. So Paul would have had completely had their undivided attention when he starts talking about spiritual battles and armor because there wasn't anybody that wanted to be walking through town and get their butt kicked by a, a, this strange spirit that was around them. It was just really practical, helpful advice. Here's what Paul says. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you'll be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. For we're not fighting flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world. And then this third phrase that Paul throws in is kind of a big bucket that catches everything. It's like if those two things, if evil rulers and authorities and mighty powers didn't catch this whole spirit realm that you're worried about, here's one that will. Evil spirits in the heavenly places. Kind of a generic term for the dark side. Paul says, it's real. This battle is real. And the very first thing we have to do is be strong. We get that. I mean, very few of us engage in things in life without wanting to be strong. Right? We want a job with good pay so our financial portfolio is strong. We want a thick 401k so that our future is strong. We go to make decisions in life and we try to get the best wisdom and the best discernment so that we make strong decisions about our life. We do what we can to grow and learn and build ourselves up so that we're strong. That's not what Paul says. Paul says, be strong in the Lord. Can I do a little Greek grammar with you this morning? I know you look so excited about that. Um, it's, it's important to help us understand the verb that Paul uses here for be strong is written in the imperative, in the imperative tense with a passive voice. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah, no. Uh, it doesn't help. So here's, here's what that all means. The passive voice in be strong says that we're looking for something that we don't have, that we can't gain on our own. There isn't strength to do this battle inside of us. We need outside help. 
And so being passive is putting yourself in a place to receive help. The imperative tense says you have to do it. You have to be strong. You have to put some intention into this. And the intentionality is in putting ourselves in that place where we simply receive the strength from God. In spiritual battle, our relationship with God gives us the strength to fight and to stand. Now, over the last 10 or 15 years, I've just fallen in love with the way one author describes how we put ourselves in that place, how we grow our relationship with God, how we tap into His strength. And he says everything we do kind of falls in three big buckets. And the first of those is spiritual experiences. We grow in our faith through those things. Like this morning, a worship service with teaching and singing. It's just a spiritual experience is some kind of a gathering with a a number of people that helps us grow in a quantitative way. We take leaps of faith sometimes in a worship service or a Christian concert or a retreat setting. We hear something, we have a conversation, there's a song that touches our heart and we just all of a sudden have this breakthrough spiritually that's not going to happen any other way. These experiences are catalytic for our growth, but they're not enough by themselves. We also need spiritual exercises. The same way that you exercise your muscles and they get strong, we exercise our faith and that muscle gets stronger. So we do things like spiritual exercises in private or with a very small group of people that we trust. Things like reading our Bible, praying, Some of the others that fall in the list are fasting and silence and secrecy, where you do kind deeds for people and don't tell a soul, and service. These spiritual exercises enable us to do things that we've not been able to do so far by direct power, our own efforts. These exercises connect us with God's power in a way much greater than our own. And Paul was right. That takes intentionality. We don't accidentally fall into the habit of praying often. We don't fall into the habit of reading our Bible. You just don't wake up one morning and stumble to the kitchen table and half an hour later go, huh, I wonder why I'm reading my Bible. It takes intentionality to do these spiritual exercises. It's why Paul said to Timothy, his young protege, take the time and trouble to keep yourself spiritually fit. We also need spiritual relationships in our life. The Christian life was never intended to be just an experienced thing. It's not just a Sunday morning thing. It also wasn't intended to be lived in solitude where we just go off by ourselves and we have a relationship with God, but not with anyone else. We were intended to explore the beauty and the love and the grace of God in the company of friends. We need people around us who know us deeply. People who love us enough to tell us the truth about our life, both good and bad, to weep with us, to celebrate with us. We don't need just friends in this world. We need friends with whom we can have serious spiritual conversations. And I don't know where you find that in your life, but for me, over the last 30 plus years, it's been in a community group. And a few times, it's been on a serving team. 
where I just intentionally put myself in relationships that are going to help me grow and tap into the power of God. So if you don't have spiritual relationships in your life this morning, if you don't have those people who encourage you, challenge you, help you with your growth in Christ, I would encourage you, go talk to Wally Marshall after the service. Hound him until he gets you connected into a community group. In fact, if you are so moved by that particular thought this morning, you go talk to him right now. He's sitting back by the soundboard. It won't hurt my feelings a bit. If all of you try to go talk to him, it will hurt my feelings. Just to be clear. Those three things, spiritual exercises, spiritual experiences, and spiritual relationships put our life and our heart in a place where we can stand strong, no matter what's thrown at us. They help us put on all of God's armor, Paul says, so that we'll be able to stand firm against the strategies of the devil. Got to be honest with you, I'm struck every time I read this verse by that little phrase, the strategies of of the devil. Do you ever spend any time thinking about how the devil plots and schemes against you? It's kind of a weird thought, I know. But the idea of this passage is that the devil is an intelligent being who carefully plans and strategizes against the church, against you as an individual believer, and against the work of God to expose the entire world to his grace. Now, it, it, it really doesn't help me that Paul doesn't expound on the strategies of the devil. I would love for him to have gone on at length about what they look like so it would be easier to recognize. But just rest assured that when he comes at us, he has an intelligently designed strategy to attack, attack our faith. So if it feels like somebody's plotting against you, it's only because they are. And the only way to keep that corrupting influence out of our lives is by putting on the entire armor of God. Anchoring every aspect of our life in God's truth and His grace. That includes our hopes, our dreams, our failures, our worries, our fears, our relationships, our pleasures, our disappointments, everything in this life. And any aspect of our life that isn't anchored in truth and grace... Now the devil's just going to figure out a way to use that to drive a wedge between us and God. I've seen people who have unresolved anger in their life. And the devil uses that to destroy all kinds of other relationships. I've seen the devil use fear to drive a wedge between people and God. I've seen the devil use pride to absolutely destroy someone's faith and the sense that they no longer need God. The devil simply takes what's already in us, that seed of discontent or doubt, and blows it up to the place that it can drive a wedge between us and any important relationship in our life, including our relationship with God. And as if to drive the point home, Paul finishes this section by saying, look, we're not fighting against simply flesh and blood enemies but against evil rulers, authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in heavenly places. My very first ministry straight out of college was in a small town in southern Indiana, just outside of Bloomington. There was nothing remarkable about Ellettsville other than that on the edge of town, 
we had the state of Indiana's only drive-in X-rated theater. That's a bonus on your travel brochures, right? When Connie and I moved there, it was the first thing we saw, you know, as you drive into town. And, you know, it had been there for decades. It was known all over the state. You tell people where you live, they go, oh, yeah, don't they have an X-rated theater? Which instantly for me, I want to go, yeah, how do you know? There's a lot of conversation in town about that theater. Almost everybody that I knew wanted to shut that theater down. And periodically, groups of people and groups of churches would get together and try to take some action to get it closed down. It was a battle that went on for decades, and we never won. And I'll never forget one Sunday night, we're sitting in a meeting with leaders of the church. And all of a sudden, the topic just drifts to, we got to get rid of that theater. That's our biggest problem. we got to do it. we got it. we got, like it was ours to do something with. And one guy who'd been quiet, one of the leaders, Mike, just spoke up. He said, I'm just kind of curious. Does anybody know the name of the owners of the drive-in? And we all kind of went, um, what the, that's a weird question. Why are you asking, what, I mean, I was just thinking, probably the best way to shut down that theater is to help them find a relationship with God. I'm guessing by the silence that was in the room that night, I'm not the only one for whom that was a a brand new thought. We had been, for years, treating them like the owners were the enemy. And I learned in that one meeting that night that it's really important that we make sure we're picking the right fight. The owner wasn't evil. The owner wasn't the devil personified. He wasn't my enemy. He was simply a pawn in a much larger battle. And it can be hard to remember that when life gets really tough for us. But our friend, our spouse, that co-worker, the person down the street, whoever it is, is not my enemy. They're just a tool. And yes, I chose that word intentionally. If you don't know what I mean by somebody being a tool, Urban Dictionary says that it's somebody who lacks the mental capacity to understand that they're simply being used. So the next time you're in a conflict, the next time you feel like the devil's plotted against you, you can just look at that person and go, you're just a tool in your head. (laughs) It's not real helpful to say it out loud. Don't ask me how I know. Because the reality is they are a tool. They're being used by the devil to get under your skin, to gain leverage, to chip away at your faith. Because whatever skirmish you're in right now, it's just a part of a battle that's bigger than you or me. And probably bigger than we understand. So the real question for me when I finish this passage is this. If all the forces of hell are marshaled against us, how do we live? What does that life look like? 
left to my own devices, I would just go and I would study and I would dig into Satan's strategies so that I could spot them, I could understand them. That's not especially helpful. Often people who do that kind of thing just end up in a place where they're discouraged or fearful. And that's not the life that God's called us to. Instead, Paul Paul says we have to keep our focus on God. Put on the whole armor. Learn as much of his truth as we can. Apply it to our life. Live in his amazing love. And live live secure in the knowledge that God is with us. God is for us. And all the power we need to live an amazing Christian life is at our disposal through God. We live with a determined assurance that neither life nor death, angels nor demons, things present or anything in the future. There is no power, there is no height, there is no depth, there is nothing in all of creation that can separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus. So we live each day watchful, because we know the devil's scheming. We live each day doing our best to recognize his strategies and to stand firm in God's strength. We live courageously. We live joyfully. We live a life of confident assurance, a life that is marked by love, not fear.